0: Hey, creep, I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant, it may not end the way you want it to, but this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is, shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. You and I are sitting down, and the movie is about to start. We've been talking about wanting to see this movie for a while, and we both anxiously shovel popcorn into our mouths as the trailers begin. There's a comedy, a drama with award-winning actors you don't really care for too much, and a movie about a talking horse. Nothing quite like what you're about to see. The movie starts and the theater is dead quiet, besides the humming of the projector. You and I nod each other, excited, and settle into our seats. The movie is about a couple staying at a cabin. It's all a little awkward because the man had been at a wedding with the lady and proposed after many years of being together, but she said no. You get the gist. We rearrange in the seats as we absorb the preamble the setup, as we get more and more attached to the characters. Things get weird when a stranger knocks at the door, but the porch light isn't on, so you can only see the silhouette. And the lady at the door says, Is Timmy home? You visibly shudder and whisper in my ear, That's when I get the heck out of there. I nod my head in agreement as I shovel more popcorn down my throat the salt and butter making my mouth parched and chase it with a sip of our communal large root beer. The lady closes the door and the man and her continue to be awkward. So awkward in fact, it makes my chest tight. Then as the room settles into an unnatural silence and the theater follows suit, a loud bang on the door and then another, We both jump in our seats, I hear you gasp, and some other people in the theater giggle. The woman walks closer to the door, placing her ear to try and hear if someone is standing on the other side, not quite willing to open it to such an aggressive knock. And we don't blame her as we shake our heads in our seats silently, our eyes glued to the screen. Is Timmy there? The voice asks again. The woman tells whoever is outside that Timmy doesn't live here. And as she turns around, she sees a man with a burlap sack over his head at the back sliding glass door before he dips away. The woman and the man are now worried, and he clearly needs to be the hero. So he goes outside with a baseball bat, looking for whoever it might be, but there is no one there. The movie settles down a little bit, but you and I can still feel that tightness in our chests, the awkwardness of the scene giving us no rest from the jump scares, perpetually stressing us out. You lean over and whisper, "Want to leave?" I nod, agreeing that in fact I do want to leave. It isn't that the movie is bad, it's because we are too freaked out to enjoy ourselves. But we stay. The woman leaves the man in the living room and takes a bath. He tries to call his brother to tell him that she said no to his proposal, but he finds his phone with the battery taken out. He thinks this is odd, but perhaps the lady dropped the phone and the battery bounced away. Eventually, the woman leaves the bath, and on re-entering the living room, she finds the sliding glass door open and the man in the kitchen unaware. We are gripping our armrests now. Something terrible is about to happen. Our eyes are intermittently shut. Our breaths are staggered, partly from the unending awkwardness and partly from the terror on the screen. And as they aren't looking, three masked individuals Come up behind them, knock them out, strap them to chairs, and murder them. The end. The lights come on and we breathe our first easy breath in an hour and a half, exhaling the stress, and we leave the theater. Sound familiar? To some of you creeps, it might. In fact, it's a very loose synopsis of the first movie I ever saw that scared me so much that I lost sleep. If you do know what movie this is, good for you. You are a creep of culture. But I think regardless of if you know this particular horror movie or not, that we've all had this similar experience. Everyone remembers that first film that scared the wits out of us, the first movie we lost sleep to, and the movies that give us lasting fears long after the credits have rolled. You and I, my creepy friend, we also know that as scary as these movies may be, that these are just, in fact, movies. But not all movies are entirely removed from reality. Oftentimes, reality is much more tragic and much more horrific than the scenes depicted in these films. On April 11th, 1981, in Ketty, California, Sheila Sharp walked into one of those very scenes. In 1979, Sue Sharp left her abusive husband, Jim, and along with her five children were kicked out of their Connecticut home. Desperate to provide a roof over the heads of her children, Sue managed to travel across the country, ferrying her children with her intermittently staying with family or friends along the way before she finally reached California, where she rented a tiny, dirty trailer in Quincy, which her brother had recently moved out of. It barely provided enough room for Sue and her brood of children to breathe, but it was warm, and a roof kept them away from the rain, and it was home, where they could get a moment to breathe after the months of traveling. Eventually, in November of 1980, Sue Sharp managed to move them all from the small trailer into a much larger cabin in Ketty. Cabin 28. Ketty Resort had always been a failed venture, especially since a man named Mr. English bought it in the 40s, and not a single owner had ever made a dime off the promise that Ketty one day would become a tourist destination. An old passenger train line named the California Zephyr was the main provider of tourist income for the small region and had Ketty in the resort as a signal stop. But when the trains fell out of fashion and the California Zephyr discontinued their passenger service, almost all of the promised tourism dried up. Then Ketty was purchased by the Molath family, who let it slowly rot. Altogether, the history of Ketty isn't interesting. Much like Ketty, it's dead and lifeless, rotting in a heap of its own remains, but it helps to understand why things turned out the way they did. Cabin 28 was originally a track house, but it had been expanded and added onto, and essentially was rented out as low-income housing. I use the word home and house because that's what it was to the Sharp family. But in reality, and by modern day standards, it was a shack that should have been burnt to the ground long before the Sharp family ever arrived. But Sue and her children needed a home. They needed a refuge. She was providing for her children the best she could. What was previously a poorly built two-room house in the 30s for railroad crews was eventually added onto, and when Sue Sharp and her children arrived, it had an additional back bedroom, a big kitchen and a basement that served as storage for the water tank, and the other side an unfinished bedroom. It was still poorly built, though, filled with musty carpets and uninsulated walls, and has since been torn to the ground to dissuade less-than-savory tourism. Five months after moving into Cabin 28, on April 11, 1981, Sue's 15-year-old son, John Sharp, and his friend Dana Wingate had been spending the day together. Around 1.30, John and Dana were picked up from Gansner Park in Quincy and were driven back to Ketty. Two hours later, John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy along Route 70. They were seen together in the city's downtown district before eventually heading to a party at Oakland Camp in Quincy. Eventually, as the day got on, John and Dana made their way back home, back to Cabin 28. The next day, Sheila Sharp, Sue's daughter who had been having a sleepover the previous night at her neighbor's cabin, the Seabolt family, came home to grab clean and more formal wear for church, which she had been planning to attend with the Seabolts. But as she pushed through the front door, she had no idea the horror and gruesome discovery she was about to make. The living room was a Jackson Pollock painting of gore. Blood was sprayed along the walls and splashed the ceiling. The carpet was soaked through with blood and in the living room lay John Sharp, Dana Wingate, and furthest away from the door, covered by the blanket off Sheila's little sister's bed, was their mother, Sue Sharp. Sheila was shocked by the horrible discovery and ran back into the Seabolt's cabin for help. Miss Seabolt, seeing the terror and shock in Sheila's face, immediately called police before returning to the cabin. They walked in the living room and passed the bodies and made their way to the back room. Sue, John, and Dana hadn't been the only ones home that night. Sheila and Miss Seabolt found Greg and Rick, Sheila's brothers, and their other neighbor Justin Smart, in the back room alive and unaware of what had happened in the living room. Law enforcement arrived shortly after to investigate and discovered the three victims had been bludgeoned, strangled, and stabbed to death. Sue had been beaten to death with a rifle, John had been stabbed and beaten with a hammer, and Dana had died of manual strangulation. Their wrists had been tied with medical tape, and Sue and John were hogtied with electrical cord. Sue had been gagged with a bandana and her own underwear. Various weapons laid scattered around the crime scene. A kitchen knife, a butcher knife, a bloody claw hammer, but the rifle used to beat Sue was not there. Police then later found an additional knife and hammer close to the crime scene, hidden in a trash can. What exactly had happened here? Three people had been brutally murdered while three young boys slept in a poorly insulated room just a few feet away? How hadn't they woken up? Greg and Rick Sharp had slept through it all, but Justin had awoken to a commotion and had witnessed the whole thing. Justin Smart provided contradicting statements to the police, though. In his first statement, he said it was all a dream, that had provided the details of the murder. Then, much later and older, with the help of hypnosis and a polygraph test, he claimed the dreams weren't real at all, that he had in fact witnessed the murders. Justin was having a sleepover with Greg and Rick, but was woken by a loud noise from the living room. Justin was startled and rubbed the sleep from his eyes and then got up and went to the doorway to see what was happening. From his door, he said he saw Sue lying on the couch, and in front of her, in the center of the room, stood two men, and that's when John and Dana came through the front door. John, startled at seeing men in his living room hunched over his mother lying on the couch, began to argue and fight with the unknown men. Justin allegedly saw Dana try to flee by running into and through the kitchen to escape through the back, but one of the men caught her. John, still arguing with the other man with brown hair, was suddenly struck with a large swinging blow to the head with a hammer, and he tumbled to the ground. Sue jumped up and rushed over to her son. Justin, scared at what he was seeing, hid behind the door. The two men then began to wrap medical tape around John, Sue, and Dana's wrists and ankle before hog-tying them with electrical cord. But Justin wasn't the only child in the home who heard the noise. Tina Sharp also heard the noise, the banging and screaming and cries, and slid out of bed, carrying her blanket behind her, and walked into the living room to ask what was happening. The two men grabbed Tina by the arms and took her out the back door. The men then came back in, murdering Sue, John, and Dana before leaving. Four hours after police initially arrived at Cabin 28, a helicopter was sent to fly over that cabin to surveil the scene and spot anything nearby that might be suspicious or out of the ordinary from the vantage of a bird's eye view. And two men were spotted traveling away from the cabin, down a hidden back route. But the noting of these men didn't inspire police to send out additional cops to find and question the individuals. To make it all worse, police didn't even initially believe Justin, or at least weren't willing to listen to Justin, when he insisted the two men had taken Tina. Crime reports from that day do not match up, not even in a small way, but downright contradicting one another. And it was determined that these reports were altered after the fact to report that they did take the abduction of Tina seriously from the moment they arrived. But it wasn't until 12 hours after the initial reports were taken that they even began to consider the validity of the missing girl. But wait it does get worse. Not only did police fail to accurately report on the crime and witness statements, the crime scene wasn't even properly secured. And to top it all off, after the evidence was bagged and taken to the sheriff's evidence locker, a rainstorm resulted in water leaking into that evidence locker, damaging most of the evidence in the quadruple homicide. Remember when I said Keddie was a rotting pit of a broken promise, a tourist destination that never was? Well, creep, my friend, my compadre, when there is no money, there isn't much interest. And when people aren't interested, there is no oversight. And when the cat's away, the mice will play. Nothing about this case is straightforward. And I'm doing my best to arrange the events and the facts in the way I understand them, the way they've appeared to me through my research. And one thing that seems to be overly abundant is police error or willful negligence. Had police taken Justin seriously when he reported to investigators that Tina had been taken, then perhaps when the helicopter had seen two suspicious men fleeing the area of a quadruple homicide, perhaps they could have stopped those men and found Tina alive and well and brought justice to the pus-filled corpse of Ketty, California. But instead, three years later and 11 days after the murder... A bottle collector discovered Tina's skull and bone fragments at Camp 18 near Feather Falls, nearly 160 kilometers from Ketty. Police themselves never did find much of anything on their own, and it pains me to know that this unsolved case could have instead been solved and provided you and I resolution and the happy feeling that Sheila and what remains of the Sharp family and the Wingates perhaps could get closure and feel that their loss was vindicated in some way or another. But to say police never found much of anything isn't to say there weren't clues. There were. And I can't say for certain who killed Sue, John, Dana, and Tina, But I can put forth the suspect I find most suspicious, who I think the evidence leans against most. In a 2008 documentary, Marilyn Smart, Justin's mom, claimed that she had suspected her husband, Martin Short, and his friend Beau were the ones responsible for the murders. On the evening of March 11th, Marilyn left her husband, Martin, and his friend, Bo, at a local bar around 11 p.m. and returned home, tired and ready to sleep. At 2 a.m., she awoke and got up to find the two men standing at the wood stove, burning something. Shortly after the murders, Martin had driven to Reno, Nevada, where he sent a letter to Marilyn contemplating the trials and tribulations of their marriage. Ending the letter with the chilling line, I've paid the price of your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. You say we're through. Marilyn has stated that she never got the letter, but did confirm it was Marty's handwriting. The letter was overlooked in the initial investigation and never admitted into evidence. On March 24, 2016, a hammer matching the description of a hammer Martin claimed he'd lost around the time of the murder, which was the same size and type of hammer that was used to bludgeon Sue, John, and Dana, was found in a local pond. According to the investigator responsible for finding the hammer, the location it was found, it would have been intentionally put there. It would not have been accidentally misplaced. But what motive did Marty have to kill? Apparently, at the time of the murder, Martin Smart was furious with Sue Sharp for getting involved in his marriage. Sue had been helping counsel Marilyn Smart and was trying to convince her to divorce her verbally abusive and angry husband. There were also rumors that Martin Smart, Beau, or both had been molesting Tina and killed to keep their secret. On part of the police, I don't even think it was negligence. It wasn't that they were bad at their jobs. I downright think it was plausible they were helping whoever committed the murders go unpunished. But why would police help Martin Smart and Bo, both rumored child molesters, men with felony records, go unpunished? Well, Martin Smart was best friends with the sheriff and Ketty at the time. The thing I find most tragic and also most hopeful, is that none of these facts ever would have come to light if it weren't for someone personally affected by the case. Mike Gamberg, who was 15 at the time of the murders and knew the Sharps, had, upon becoming a police officer, initially been told by his sheriff, the same one who had been best pals with Martin, who, in Gamberg's opinion, did a worse job than police academy recruits, Well, he was told that if he poked around the case, he would be fired. But in 2016, with the departure of the old guards, Mike Gamberg managed to reopen the case, and much of the evidence has been a result of his recent effort to find some closure. This case remains open and active to this day. Mike Gamberg is still trying to reconstruct what exactly happened. And while progress is still being made, this case remains unsolved. And well, Creep, your guess is as good as mine. So, Creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. And more importantly, every single five-star review gets me one step closer to getting out of my mother's basement. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, and production and editing by Matt Black. And remember creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door.